Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before the throne of grace once again, thankful and humble and rejoicing. Because, Father, uh, this is a grace provision this morning that we did not earn, we did not deserve. We have no business in ourselves to, uh, to seek these things out. But by your grace, Father, we are in Christ. And in him, we have every right, every privilege, every blessing. Every blessing in the, in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. And I thank you for that. So, Father, we come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, calling upon your faithfulness to the open the eyes of our understanding. Bless our time in your word today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Working our way through in this uh, chapter of personal and public wisdom. Remember, the personal wisdom becomes public when more and more believers are living it out in, uh, in their daily life. And this uh, has an impact in our culture. And we've uh, been seeing this, and we've been seeing under point eight, the uh, political joy and exaltation that comes. And uh, the principles here in verses 10, through 10 and 11 and verse 14, the impact that we have in our culture. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And so the impact we can have in our city, in our state, in our nation, and we want to have that impact. We want to have more and more believers living out the Word of God by grace, through faith, on a daily basis, and that will benefit the, the political uh, structures over us. Uh, verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Are we blessing our city? Are we blessing our state? Are we blessing our nation? In, uh, in our role as ambassadors, in our role as believer priests, in, uh, in what we do. Uh, by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. What are we doing on a daily basis? Are we blessing our nation or are we tearing it down? Are we cursing our nation? Do we have uh, positive things to say in grace and love? Or are we always negative in, uh, in darkness and, and uh, carnality? What are we doing? Are we blessing or are we cursing? The same tongue does both. What are we doing? And we realize the privilege we have is the privilege to bless, to speak favorably to, to uh, speak on favorable terms. And uh, it's going to be our privilege to do so uh, starting Sunday night uh, at the 6 o'clock hour to be able to bless our nation through our prayers on behalf of pastors and churches around this country. And we're going to be engaged in that prayer ministry on a blessing basis. And this passage says that we will uh, exalt the city. Likewise, in verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so on a political basis, on a secular basis, in in the uh, application of this through public wisdom, then more believers that are oriented to the word of God, that have God's wisdom and God's standards, we will bless our community. We can provide the abundance of guidance, the abundance of counselors, where if uh, more and more believers are on board with God's plan and program, uh, common sense can once again become more common <laughs> as opposed to the endangered species that I think it is these days. And that uh, what, what has substituted for God's wisdom in common sense has now become the world's wisdom in common sense, which really makes no sense. Uh, it is foolishness in the plan of God in, uh, in those applications there. Under point nine, we looked at verses uh, 12 and 13, and we saw the activities of gossip and slander and how destructive they are. They do destroy a community, and uh, so wisdom will keep matters silent. And uh, principles that come up in those verses that really are a review of the doctrine that was taught in chapter 10. A lot of this comes back over and over and over again. As we've commented on, we're going to see it again. 
And uh, the aspect of wisdom is such that through the redundancy and the repetitiveness, we get uh, these principles reinforced again and again and again in our thinking. And we, if we think that we don't need the reminders, uh, that's the, exactly the moment that we do need the reminders uh, because we've grown prideful to the, to the sense that we think uh, that we know it so well we don't need those reminders. All right, beyond that then, moving on to point 10. And the principles here in verse 14, kind of a, a, a follow-up to what we saw then under point 8, because I, I put vo- verse 14 in two different points, I just realized. I attached it to the end of verse uh, of point 8 when I decided I didn't want to give it its own point of study, and then I went ahead and gave it its own point of study anyway. So what are you going to do? All right, point 10 then in the outline. Abundant public wisdom, filling the commons with common sense, supplies community guidance and salvation. And it truly is. It is a, a blessing. If, if in fact, you, you live in a, in, a, in a neighborhood or in a, in a town, uh, sometimes we say the small towns are better than the big cities. Um, but, you know, Ralph, uh, I talked to Ralph on the phone the other day, and he said, no, the small towns have the same centers that the big cities have, you know. Um, but you would think that if, if there's a more of a concentration of believers under teaching in the Word of God, that it would then have that effect. And, and, and everyone in your neighborhood, on your block, everyone would be like-minded in just knowing what needs to be done and getting it done in, uh, in those things. So we can provide the community guidance and the salvation there <clears throat> that verse 14 speaks of. Keep in mind, the word for victory is the word for salvation. It speaks of Yeshua. It speaks of Jesus, our Savior. It speaks of salvation. And so we want to understand the, the blessings of the vocabulary there as we were looking at it um, a week ago. All right. And I ended up giving it some subpoints A, B, C, and D. And so uh, good thing it got its own point. I didn't just tack it onto the end of, of uh, point eight. All right, which gets us now to verse 15 and we can talk about financial bondage this morning financial bondage as a principle of public wisdom we have previously developed this in parental wisdom and so it comes back again things you should have learned as a kid maybe you did maybe you didn't but now you need to learn them as an adult because now you're on your own and now you can really get in trouble if you uh, become surety for your neighbor if you become the guarantor for something that they are engaged in all right And so when we look at verse 15, it kind of preaches itself. He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. And so we ask ourselves here then, what is the scope of these these activities? And what is the venue that these activities are appropriate for? What does the Bible describe related to these things? All right. And... uh, uh, previously, of course, we had five verses in, in chapter 6 where this really got developed out on a, on a fuller basis. Um, but we understand the idea of a guarantor, right? Someone that's signing as collateral, somebody that's uh, speaking as to the credibility of somebody else in, uh, in, in a sense. And this is a great reminder for me, by the way. <clears throat> My daughter's lease is up and I'm supposed to sign a piece of paper because she's signing a new lease for a new apartment. All right, and the apartment manager says, "Well, um, you're a young person and don't have much of a credit record, and and uh, who who's going to pay this rent if you don't pay this rent?" So, 
good thing I'm not a stranger, all right, because, or she's not a stranger. I'm not going to become a a guarantor for a stranger, all right? But what is a stranger versus what is a neighbor versus what is a family member? And what is expected of the family, of the clan, of the tribe in the Old Testament, all right, as it pertains to financial dealings? There are financial expectations within the family, within the clan, within the tribe whereby you have to redeem a piece of sold property if you can. And the blessing it is yours to do so to keep it within the family, within the clan, and within the tribe. And the Old Testament teaches those principles of redemption. And they become principles that illustrate, obviously, our redemption, our Savior, and what he does when he comes as the kinsman redeemer. And so there is a place for that. All right? Doug, can you turn that down a little bit? Thanks. I hope you're not freezing out there. Because it's uh, set to broil 220 up here on the on the podium. All right. So uh, clearly, though, here's the stranger, uh, and which is different than, is even worse than the neighbor that we were introduced to in chapter 6. Um, and so... Uh, we have to learn uh, about what wisdom provides related to these entanglements and what is an entanglement and what is a proper financial um, agreement, see. Uh, Is there anything wrong with a business partnership, for example? Well, a business partner is not going to be a stranger, (laughs) all right? So that's entirely different. Um, uh, As far as what happens when there is cooperation on a business endeavor, what happens when there's cooperation on the part of, of people that voluntarily contribute towards uh, an endeavor? Peter and, and, uh, and his brother were business partners with James and John. They had a fishing conglomeration there yeah, that's described for us in the, in the New Testament with multiple boats, multiple uh, servants even, slaves, that were involved in cleaning the nets and, and working, the, working the boats. And it was called a partnership, see. And, and actually, I think the partnership was with Zebedee, the father of James and John, which to me is a clue that Peter was a bit older than James and John. We know that they were a bit younger in any event. Um, those principles are laid out in Scripture and are presented in Scripture as proper, as appropriate, as not sinful. See, so we want to understand how does the Bible lay these things out if we're going to live our lives according to the biblical standards of economics. So let's back up a little bit and see what we've already studied from chapter 6. If you were with us, and you'll recall what we looked at here. And uh, <clears throat> much of what you want to warn your kids about before they leave home, uh, the things that will destroy their lives if they're not careful, uh, obviously uh, the sex issues, the fornication struggles is going to be a problem for them, and they have to, they have to be on board with the biblical norms and standards for, for sexuality within marriage. Otherwise, when they launch into their own generation, they're going to ruin their uh, lives quicker than anything. Secondarily to that is the financial issues. We want our children to be uh, oriented biblically to principles of of, uh, biblical uh, money and, and finances. So he says, my son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. So we have both neighbor and stranger in this context. Chapter 11 was only stranger. Here it's neighbor and stranger. If you have ensnared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. 
And this becomes a problem because in the community, our word should count. Our word is our bond. If we say yes to an agreement, we say yes to an agreement. And uh, once we agree to something, it's like a bird in a trap. We're snared. Otherwise, we have to compromise our integrity. We have to then back out on a deal. We have to then and then face the consequences of, of betraying a business deal. And the warning that's given here is interesting. So if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, you've been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Rescue yourself. Save yourself. <laughs> okay? And that's kind of a scary term. Because, I mean, if you're like me, um, I love salvation passages in the Bible that tell me I can't save myself, right? I love salvation passages that, that show me that my Savior is the one that saved me, and I want to trust in Him. And, you know, an idea of saving myself is kind of a, a scary thought. But the command here is save yourself, okay? And it uses that language, I think, very forcefully and very directly. Because when it comes to this foolishness in your business endeavor, you, um, you, you became surety for someone you should not have become surety for. You became surety for a neighbor. You became surety for a, save, for a stranger. Why did you do that? And, and who made you do that? Nobody made you do that. You did that. You did something dumb. <laughs> okay? And uh, the joys of parenting are the joys of telling children that they did something dumb. And then coaching them through biblical wisdom in not doing the dumb thing ever again, right? Learning from the dumb thing. And depending on how dumb, such as this, there may be immediate steps necessary to, uh, to uh, extricate yourself from a dumb situation, okay? Which is not only dumb, but harmful and unbiblical. And if it means the shame of uh, of whatever the consequences are, then you've got to deal with that. And and because you're the one that did it, you're the one that's got to undo it. You're the one that's got to got to do this now to extricate yourself. So uh, it's like the you know you made your bed, you lie in it. It's the it's the sowing and reaping consequences of of temporal life. So do this then, my son. Deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go. Humble yourself and importune your neighbor. You are already in his hands. Now you have to humble yourself and put yourself at his mercy. And, uh, and it's going to hurt. It's going to be embarrassing. You're not going to like it. And the terms that he uh, extends um, may, may be worse than the, the, the original terms that, that got you sucked into this thing in the first place. But that's, that's the price you've got to pay. Because you've got you to get out from under this, uh, this uh, bond service. So humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. And it may be to get out from under this, you, you take a second job, you take a third job, you're losing sleep. You're killing yourself for a season, but you've got to get out of this. And it's, it's got to be now. It's got to be now. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And then go to the ant, O sluggard. <laughs> right? What, what follows the, 
the uh, extricate yourself admonition in verses one through five is the is the work hard and save uh, passage of, of verses six and following. Now, a lot of this too, we got more questions than answers really in this passage and other passages. Um, there's no explanation given as to what the surety is for, because it really doesn't matter. I'm sure he has good reasons for why he wants your money or what he needs or or what what your opportunity is in this. Why why are you willing to become surety? What are you getting out of it? What is your benefit? We see the benefit to the neighbor or the stranger or the whoever, but why? What's being accomplished here? And why does he need you? <laughs> why is he going to you? Why does he why is he not involved with his family, his clan, his tribe? Why is this falling on you? Why are you engaged as surety for something? What what does your clan chief think about this? What does your tribe prince think about this? What does your father think about this in the family of the clan and the tribe? Why is the clan not backing up this endeavor or the tribe or the family? Why is he going to you for this scheme and this arrangement this whatever it might be okay not saying that it's illegitimate but there are legitimate sources for revenue what uh what's he doing to get his funding to raise his capital to um to whatever else that he could be doing see in in what god has prescribed so if god has provided positive methods for the raising of capital and the the expenditure of, of of investments and all of this then why uh, why do something beyond what God has prescribed? So those are uh, <clears throat> those are the uh, the uh, principles there, and, and we taught more on that in uh, in chapter six. This comes back again in chapter seventeen, and so everything that was given in parental wisdom now is getting restated in personal and public wisdom, because the lessons that you learn as a child under your parents' roof. Um, you may forget about them or you may think that, well, you know, what do they know? And you, and you think that now in your day and age you're going to make better choices and, and do better things until you find out that, oh, wait a minute, their wisdom is timeless. Their wisdom is, is not just them being old fuddy-duddies and old-fashioned and, and whatever, that they actually, their thinking had been shaped by the Word of God and that it is eternal, it is timeless, it is valid in my day and age as well. I now have to live it out as a principle in, in my personal um, Christian walk. Proverbs uh, 17. A man la- uh, verse 18 says, A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. And so uh, there it is. It, there's a larger context that surrounds it. Verse 17, A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You know, what, what are the provisions God has made for these things? It's our family. It's our, and in the church age, it's our church family, all right? But just in, in temporal life, it's, it's our family and our clan and our tribe, things that I think have largely been lost in the modern world, sadly. So again, verse 17, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. If, uh, if you need a pledge, if you need a guarantor, that's who you turn to. You're turning to your family. You're turning to your clan. You're turning to your tribe. You're not turning to the uh, the neighbor or, or the stranger. What are you doing that for? 
Okay? And so um, these things, I don't know. <clears throat> At a certain point, we, we need to develop the, the laws of divine establishment out from Genesis and elsewhere, whereby we have the, the clear boundaries that are in place between personal volition, marriage, family, and nations. And we have the activities that fall within each of those realms. And, and we keep those things where they belong. And, uh, and we realize that, that, that God has designed each of these realms for our existence. And when we blur those lines or when we apply the wrong thing in the wrong place, we end up in trouble. And, uh, and, and, and it includes our finances. It includes our, our money. And, and what do we do with, with uh, the income that we, that we produce and the savings and who are we saving for and, and, and what is the role? And how much of our income goes to community versus family, say? And what is the taxing authority of our government and, and all the, uh, the things there? All right, um, Proverbs... Uh, anyway, I think Proverbs 17 is useful in that regard because clearly you've got a friend, you've got a brother, and you've got a neighbor in uh, verse 17 and verse 18, and there's a, there's a contrast being portrayed. All right, Proverbs 22... and uh, different community uh, relations here. 22.22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead, plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Verse 26, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Anyway, there's there's a a variety of applications there. We'll get to that in chapter 22. But verse... uh, 26 is the one that speaks of these pledges that speaks of these guarantors and the trouble that we get into the trouble we get into if uh, we're involved in this kind of activity all right that's verse 15 back to proverbs 11 now the rest of this chapter starting with a gracious woman and working our way down to verse 31 um, we got a number of interesting things here. Point 12, and I'm stealing a quote out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Most of the verses in Proverbs 16, uh, Proverbs 11, verses 16 through 31, refer in some way to the rewards of righteous and kind living. And, and really, the rest of chapter 11 is centered on the, uh, the benefits of righteousness and kindness. And it's centered on temporal life. And it's a very practical chapter, or half chapter, all right? It's a very practical section here of Proverbs, focused on righteous, contrasted with the unrighteous, and focused on kindness. And then, of course, it's antithesis as well. We've got a lot of uh, parallelism here in the, in the opposite of, of uh, kindness. We're going to see the ruthless man and the cruel man and, and the things here. And so in, in, the, in the rest of this chapter now, what we're develop in these verses um, is this principle of uh, of kindness, 
And the basis of that kindness is grounded in the absolute righteousness of, uh, of God. And, in, and what we do as an expression of our position in Christ. What we do with the, on the basis of our reality in our salvation. And, and if, we, if we teach this chapter well, then we will, uh, we will apply this chapter well for the right reasons. But if we teach this chapter poorly, or if we allow ourselves to slide into a, a, a poor approach, then we're going to be no different than the light and fluffy Christianity that now is, I think, uh, damaging our, our nation. Because this, um, this chapter can feed itself into the philosophy of our age, the philosophy of, of moralistic therapeutic deism, the philosophy of, of, of churches today that have substituted the Christian way of life with the theology of be nice. All right? And, and really the, the prime message of our, of our generation is be nice. And we go to church and we learn how to be nice. And we go to church and, and we get these, uh, these little homilies about being good people. And good people are those that are nice to one another. And we don't do the things that aren't nice. See, that's why we don't tell the sinner about his sin, because that's not nice. We want to be nice. And so um, much of this is going to come up in the subpoints, and much of this is going to come up, um, in fact, just now in illustrating this, I, I reminded myself of a, of, a, of a quote I wanted to include on this slide. Um, but the definition of what the, the, uh, the churches are preaching today is not biblical Christianity. It is, it is a moralistic, therapeutic deism that, that not only shows up in Christian churches, but in non-Christian churches. Shows up in, in Buddhist circles and in other circles. Because they can be nice too. Mormons can be nice. Buddhists can be nice. Hindus can be nice. Uh, Muslims can be nice when they're not chopping off your head. All right. There are some moderate Muslims that, that, that are nice. Okay. I think that they're apostate renegades to the true Quran that, uh, that their fellow jihadis uh, rightly call them. <laughs> right? We call them moderate Muslims. The jihadis call them heretics because they're, they're nice. And the Quran doesn't tell them to be nice. <laughs> Am I making sense this morning? Okay. I thought maybe the antihistamines had taken over. So, this practical theology is very practical. And I want us to be nice, okay? But I want us to be nice for the right reasons. And I want us to be kind for the right reasons. And gracious for the right reasons. And in our kindness, in our mercy, in our graciousness, in our being nice, we want to be um, reflective of the grace of God that's been extended towards us. And in that, we are never going to be excusing sin. And we are never going to be compromising on the absolute standard of righteousness that is the basis for everything that comes out of it. If you compromise that, you might as well not be nice. This practical theology is often counterfeited by those who desire personal morality apart from the absolute standard of God's Word. And by and large, this is the bulk of, of people we live with and work with and, 
And in churches, sad to say it, churches. They preach a morality, but it's a morality apart from the absolute standard of God's Word. And they make the Word of God flexible. They make the Word of God conform to our norms and standards in our generation today. They're going to update the Bible based upon our modern sensibilities. And they can't do that. The Word of God is what's eternal. It's God's standard that's eternal. And we don't update it to reflect our, our uh, you know, the sins that we want to get away with today. All right, so <clears throat> in this now, uh, starting with the gracious woman, we've got um, a pair of verses, verses 16 and 17. We're going to handle as a pair because they are, in the, in the poetry of this, they are linked together. You've got the gracious woman attains honor. And ruthless man attain riches. This is what's produced. These are the wages, the consequences. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. And so here's the poetry of these verses here. Subpoint A. Gracious and merciful living. It is personally enriching, but ruthless and cruel living is personally harmful. The damage that's done is the damage that's done to your own soul. Likewise, the benefit that's done is the benefit to your own soul when you are gracious and merciful. <clears throat> you attain honor. That's a personal benefit. Uh, the merciful man does himself good. That's a personal benefit. So take the first half of verse 16 and the first half of verse 17 and you see the point that I'm making there in the subpoint A. Gracious and merciful living. It is personally enriching. So far as you are doing these things for the right reasons, with the right motivation, based on the scriptures, based on how God has been gracious to you. It can't be human viewpoint. It can't be human effort. If it is, it's wood, hands, double, and useless at the judgment seat of Christ. But if it's genuinely motivated by the truth of God's word, by God's wisdom, if you are gracious and merciful based on the standard of God's word, then yes, it is personally enriching. And you will receive honor, both in time and in eternity. And uh, you do yourself good. You do yourself good. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting, too, the... Um, the way we in the body of Christ can apply all the agape love principles to this. Uh, we have a perspective far beyond anything an Old Testament believer ever would have dreamed of, right? Because we have all of the New Testament teaching as it relates to agape love, to unconditional love. to uh, We want to be gracious and merciful uh, as, as expressions of our agape love mandate that we have in the, in the body of Christ. And to be able to do so as a reflection of the grace and mercy God has poured out on us. I tell you that you know when you when you identify with how much grace you've been given, it just compels you. The love of Christ constrains us. I want to extend grace to others because I've I've received so much. I want to extend mercy to others because I've received so much, and it, it removes the um, the perspective of looking at the other person and saying, "Well, what have you done for me lately? Or what do I get out of it? Or you know, well, you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But until until then, forget it." You know, that's not that's not um, 
That's that's the the carnally minded person. That's the worldly minded person, who's trying to who's who's perverting grace and mercy into something that's not grace and mercy. And uh, and if that's the motivation, if you're only working on behalf of somebody else so that you you get a benefit from them, it's not about that. The benefit you get is from the Lord. The benefit you get is 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 the uh, the consequences here that we see the honor and the reward and the and the um, the goodness that comes that's, that's produced within you because because you've been obedient to God's hand of wisdom. I hope that makes sense. Uh, if you want something from that other person, what do you want that for? All right, and then the antithesis, of course, the ruthless and cruel living. Take the second half of verse sixteen. The second half of verse seventeen. You got the ruthless man who attains riches. And the cruel man who does himself harm. And uh, you know, well, what's wrong with attaining riches? Isn't it good? Don't you got to make money? You know, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be working for for uh, profit and increase into our wealth? And what's wrong with that? Well, if that's all you're accumulating, there's a lot that's wrong with that. Jesus spoke to that man and called him a fool. He was rich in the world, but not rich towards God. In fact, I think the. Um, New King James or the NIV, one of those texts puts the word only in there to, to kind of highlight the fact that, that that's all he gets. The, the ruthless man attains only riches or you know just earthly money, the mammon. That's all he's got to, to show for it. Not a bad translation, I guess, but there's no Hebrew term for it, so I don't mind leaving it the way that it is. And the cruel man does himself harm. The cruel man does himself harm. And this is something that uh, I think we've learned in other lessons as well. The, the reason why uh, you want to end that root of bitterness at the root. You don't want the bitterness to grow. You don't want the, the darkness to intensify. You don't want the ugliness to fester. And that uh, if, you, if you insist on keeping your mind in those, in those uh, harmful realms of thinking, of uh, ruthlessness and wickedness and cruel, well, what's motivating that anyway? And where's that going to take you? And okay, let's say you are victorious. Let's say you're, you, you successfully accomplished your knife in the back, right? Good for you. Hooray. You know, you've, you've accomplished your revenge. You've accomplished your ruthlessness. You've applied your cruelness. Boy, I sure hope you hurt whoever it was that you wanted to hurt, right? I'm, I'm being sarcastic here. But really, who, who are you hurting? You're hurting yourself. That's right. And even if you are successful at digging that knife in, and even if you are successful at returning evil for evil, you just hurt yourself all the more. And uh, this is why you know, we're commanded to, to return a blessing instead, not a cursing. Then we respond to, to the affliction with love and all these things and what Jesus taught us and what we have in the New Testament. Well, it's got a foundation here. So uh, ruthless and cruel living is personally harmful. And you end up with people that are just so damaged that they've poisoned their own soul and they've made it worse, they've made it worse, they've made it worse over a long uh, sequence of, uh, of, of these kind of things. All right, other passages that speak of mercy, that speak of graciousness, the blessings of different things. I think Psalm 41 addresses this very well. This is a Davidic psalm. I'm sure Solomon learned it from David. 
Psalm 41, for the choir director, Psalm of David. Asherah, happiness. How happy, or blessed, I like happy. How happy is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. Anyway, there's a pattern that's here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, right? Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. I think I just quoted it. Blessed are the merciful. But it comes out of Psalm 41. It comes out of Proverbs 11. It comes out of an Old Testament foundation whereby believers living under wisdom want to be gracious and merciful believers. Because Yahweh is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We want to reflect that in our our Christian walk. Whether that's New Testament Christianity or Old Testament Moseyanity, the the concept is, is the same. We want to be a reflection of the grace we've been given. So, uh, yes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And how about the sheep and goat passage of Matthew 25? And uh, you see there's somebody that, ha- that has a need, and you provide for that need. They're naked, so you clothe them. They're hungry, so you feed them. Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. setting aside for a moment the eschatological nature of this and the the prophetic fulfillment of this. Just looking at it as a principle that's timeless in its application. Uh, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. That's an application of compassion. That's mercy. That's that's uh, the graciousness and the mercy that we're looking at here in Proverbs chapter 11. It's not, uh, it's not looking for, well, what have they done for me lately? Or what are they going to pay me for it? Or what do I get out of it? It's just a recognition, hey, here's a hungry person. And uh, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. You know, what else are you going to do? I mean, these are the needs that are here. And, uh, you know, you can provide for those needs for the right reasons in the right way. You can glorify Jesus Christ in so doing. Or you can, um, like in the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, you can be the, the Levite or the priest and you can cross the other side of the road and walk on by and act like you never saw it. Say, oh, not my problem. Glad I'm not him. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and let it go. And uh, so uh, when, uh, let's see, what did I leave off? Naked. Uh, In prison, you came to visit me. And so uh, the circumstance is there. Finally, Luke 6.36. B, 
be merciful just as to the infinite degree. You know, ask yourself, well, how merciful do I got to be? Right? Seven times seven? <laughs> right? How often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? How merciful is merciful? Who's my neighbor? And, and, and the, 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 the carnal mind always wants to know what the bare minimum is. So how can I snake by, squeak by? How can I just barely muddle through doing the bare minimum so I'm not in trouble for not doing what I, you know? And that's not what it's about. It should be about what, what can I do? What's the degree? It's infinite, just as your father is merciful. So if you want to be just a little bit merciful, what that says is that you want to testify that our father is just a little bit merciful. And I don't know about you, but I want my testimony to be better than that. I want my testimony to be that my God is infinitely merciful. All right? And I'm preaching to myself this morning because this is, this, is, uh, this is seven days a week in my home. All right? And uh, the, 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 if you're a caregiver for an elderly person, uh, you know how this works. And there's an awful lot of opportunities for graciousness and, and mercy. And, uh, and then there's an awful lot of occasions when humanity wants to just quit. But there's no limits. God's mercy has no limits. God's grace has no measure. And so we want to be reflections of that in all that we do. And for the right reasons. Because as, as Scripture says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you know everything that you did, grumbling, has no reward. You know, you're going to watch that burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And, and Jesus Christ will say, hey, you know what? That would have been pretty good had you not been grumbling about it. <laughs> that was ready to go in the gold, silver, and precious stones ledger of the, of the, of the Bema seat. It was just ready to, to go down there as gold until you grumbled. And then as soon as you grumbled, oh, slide it over there to the wood, hay, and stubble category. And you still did what you had to do, but you grumbled about it. So you look at verse 36 here and you see where it is in verse connected to uh, the verses that lead up to this. You know, the golden rule and whatnot. You get uh, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Okay. Can an unbeliever do that? You know, could there be people that kind of replicate that or, or mimic that or counterfeit that and they have a moralism and, you know, they've got a golden rule kind of philosophy and they're nice people, they're good people a lot of the time, convincing themselves that their goodness counts for something and they maybe even be able to do better than, than we do. And that's humbling and embarrassing and sad because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So this is the scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. <clears throat> if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit? Okay. Um, so verse 33 and verse 32 say much the same thing, but it's loving and doing good. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back. <clears throat> In fact, this is why some people have the wrong motivation for becoming surety. Um, they're actually hoping to, to profit off the deal. <clears throat> but love your enemies. Do good and lend. Do good and lend. There's a place for lending. It's not all usury. It's not all carnality. Expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. 
You will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. All right. So we want to have gracious and merciful living, but we want to have it for the right reasons. We don't want to just plunge into a thing. And we want to do so thoughtfully. We want to do so thoughtfully. We want to do so will, uh, intentionally, volitionally. Be able to offer it up as a sweet-smelling savor. Just lay it before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, my humanity doesn't want to do this, but I'm doing this. <laughs> All right? And I'm going to make a gracious and merciful choice here on the basis of my conviction from the Scriptures, on the basis of Luke chapter 6, on the basis of that Proverbs class Pastor Bob taught, on the basis of whatever. I want to respond to the Word of God, and I'm going to live this out, and I'm going to make this choice, and I'm going to offer this up as a sweet-smelling savor. And this is the basis for what I'm doing. And lay that before Him. Make it a, a sweet-smelling savor before Him. And lay it out there on a prayerful basis. And that way you're on board volitionally. That way you can't come back later and with hindsight start regretting it. That's something else that happens. Sometimes we do the right thing for the right reasons and then later we think back and reflect back and then later we, we develop a mental attitude of sin, right? Later, something else happens. The next day, the day after that, the day after that. And then what do we do? Then we throw a hissy fit and say, how dare you? How dare you? After all I did for you, right? I did this, I did this, I did this. And the sad thing is at the time we were right for doing it, but now in hindsight, what have we just done? In hindsight, we're lifting up those good things as if they entitle us to something. Okay, so we can actually retroactively, I think, do some damage. So my proposal is, and in I offered this to, to Al this morning too in an application for an encouraging ministry, is, uh, is, you know, track it, journal it if you want, or make it a prayer item. And say, Father, here's what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, and, and lay that out there before Him as a part of our priestly function. And uh, see if that produces the benefit that keeps you from retroactively after the fact going back and turning it into something that it, it shouldn't have been in the first place. An act of goodness that becomes a, an act of human goodness. It's got to be according to his standard. So there it is. Be holy as he is holy. Be merciful as he is merciful. These, these are just humbling passages that uh, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, you just realize the Christian way of life, biblical New Testament Christianity is so beyond us. We have, to, we have to be filled with the Spirit. We have to let God do these things. All right. Next week, we'll come back and look at the sowing and the reaping. I'm, I'm going to stop 10 minutes early. I'm just losing, losing my voice here. Um, we got sowing and reaping. Let me get back to Proverbs 11. And, um, <clears throat> the um, verse 18 the wicked earns deceptive wages but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward and so it's good that we've been in Galatians 6 recently and we've seen the doctrine of sowing and reaping we've seen the spiritual application in, in Galatians here we're looking at a temporal application 
in Proverbs, but the concept is the same. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. He who pursues evil will bring about his own death. And so we have sowing and reaping in uh, in these things. So we'll uh, come back next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending, and, and tackle verses 18 and 19 in this. Father, thank you for this morning. Thankful for your truth. Thankful for all that you've opened up to us. Uh, Father, you understand this uh, This is our cedar season, and you designed it. And Father, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the millennium is going to be a lot better. Our resurrection bodies are going to be a lot better. And the new heavens and new earth are going to be a whole lot better, Father. And that's what I'm looking forward to, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Father, uh, just thank you for being faithful. I pray that we'll take hold of this teaching and live it out on a real basis for the right reasons and we not simply succumb to the the philosophies of our age that uh, centers in on on being nice and uh, personal self-esteem if i feel good about myself and I'm, if i'm nice to others then uh, then i'm going to thrive in uh, in most churches today uh, but father uh, these these applications need to come as expressions of your absolute standard and uh, i pray that for our sake that uh, in our application that they certainly do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.